We thank you again for who you are, for the fact that you are sovereign and work all things after the counsel of your will, that history has a purpose, our lives have a meaning, not because we're random chance products of evolution, but because we're created in your image, held together and sustained by your word. And we thank you that you have seen fit to reveal yourself down through history very graciously to us that we may come to you through the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We thank you in his name. Amen. We're on the event of the Exodus now. And because we are, we are going to expand a little bit into some historical matters. Uh, We've spent an awful lot of time talking about civilization as we know it, how it came to pass, biblically speaking, how that radically differs from what you learn in the average history course. And as last year we found out, we disagreed in the area of of physics, we disagreed in the area of chemistry, we disagreed in the area of, as far as those sciences pertain to writing history, that is, geology, anthropology, biology, psychology, and, of course, tonight when we get into the Exodus, we're going to find we'd also disagree with ancient historians. So, that's sort of the way our faith is. And it's not a commentary that we are stupid. It's rather a commentary that the world's a very dark place and that there are spiritual forces that have an agenda behind the scenes that do deeply affect how we think. And that's why we've emphasized again and again, over and over in this course, that there's no such thing as being neutral. There's no such thing as a neutral piece of truth. Because everything we state, everything we believe, carries with it an agenda. It carries with it a faith. It carries with it a starting point. And as Christians, we have to be sensitive to that, or uh, we just don't see what the Bible's telling us. The Bible is telling us that when man fell, he fell all the way. He didn't fall from the neck down. He fell from here down. And that means, as sinners, we are affected in our reasoning. And this is why God has given us Scripture to give us a a calibration point, a correction in faulty reasoning. Else we cannot know who God is and we cannot interpret the gospel correctly. Well, in the notes, we uh, handed out the... We had some Egyptian art forms. And last time I explained a few things. I've just mentioned this, if you weren't here. On page 43, trying to give you some of the background of the Exodus so that this event doesn't happen in a vacuum. There were certain precursors in that society in that point in time in history that were going on. God didn't um, throw dice and said, gee, it would be nice to have an Exodus or two. Um, the Exodus happened at precisely the right time in history to accomplish God's purpose. So that means that we have to think a little bit about what was going on. Remember, this is not a Bible class and a verse-by-verse approach. It's more of an apologetics Bible and historical theology approach. So we're tying all these things together and moving pretty fast. So we want to look at two aspects of what was happening prior to the Exodus. First thing, on page 43, we mention Abraham's family problem. And it's it's vital to see that, that the reason why the Jews were in Egypt in the first place was because of a dysfunctional family. It was put there 
so to speak, as a disciplinary move to preserve them. Egyptian society discriminated against the people who would be doing things like Jews. They were basically a pastoral people and a shepherding people. And Egyptians apparently didn't like this. The discrimination is, is said right in the Joseph narratives. When Joseph invites the people together, they say that the Egyptians will not eat with the Jews. Jews can eat over there. We'll eat over here. So it was a discriminatory society. And, in a, and, and this is not to approve it. It's simply to say God used that because the Canaanites were not discriminatory. And the danger we saw last time was that if you read the narrative, particularly the one I quote in the bottom page, 30, uh, bottom page 43, if you read in Genesis 37, Genesis 38, in that section of Scripture, you'll see that the family was in very, very serious shape. The family was totally absorbing itself in Canaanite culture. So the Canaanites were not segregationist at all. The Canaanites were very eclectic. They welcomed you aboard and seduced you. And that is a more dangerous situation than an overtly segregationist society like the Egyptians. So God moved that dysfunctional family out of an eclectic society into a segregationist society. So that's the first thing we have to realize is that they're down there for less than spiritual purposes, not because they're so righteous. They're getting down there because it's trying to make them survive in history. Why is God interested in making that family survive in history? Because he made a promise. Remember the promises in the Abrahamic covenant? We had three promises. Promise of seed, a land, and a worldwide blessing. And we said once a contract is established, that becomes the yardstick for measuring behavior against the words of the contract. Well, God already made the contract. Now God has to live up to the contract. And so here's this family falling apart. So the only way he can gather up the pieces and keep them reasonably together is to move them down here into a sort of a, like a historical womb to give birth to his nation. And Egypt can be considered as a, as a historic womb of Israel. Then we said on page 44, we mentioned the structure of Egyptian society. And I think this is, bears review even for those of you who were here because there's certain elements of Egyptian society that are necessary as you read through Exodus and read through those dialogues of Moses versus Pharaoh, Moses versus Pharaoh, and, and that conflict that comes on again and again, chapter after chapter after chapter. We want to understand what Moses faced and into what kind of a society those people were. Because remember, when the exodus occurs, it's not like all the Jews are just rushing to, to go out with Moses. That's not true. The Jews reluctantly went out with Moses. Reluctantly. And we have to understand, well, why were they so reluctant? I mean, here they were slaves. They were crying to God for the bad, behave, the, the bad situation they were facing. Um, we'll comment more on that tonight. Uh, they were in really bad shape economically bad shape physically, had no hope, uh, saw no reason to live. And in the middle of that, here comes a guy that says, you're going to be free, and they don't want to be free. So there's some things going on here, and they're important. And here's why it's important. Christians have known for centuries, and you read devotional literature and you'll see this, Christians have intuitively understood that Egypt is a picture of the world. 
And the exodus is a picture of the Christian coming out of the world. There's an analogy there. So we want to look at Egypt a little bit. The Holy Spirit picked that particular society from which to have an exodus. And that means we better look at that and see if there's certain traits in that society that we need to check out a little bit. Apparently, these, these traits are very opposite to the way God wants us to live. Because obviously, when he gets his nation set up, he moves it out of there because they can't live that way in that society. They have to leave the society in order to live to the Lord. So, that's what we're looking at. The structure of Egyptian society. And I quote on page 44, uh, the uh, University of Chicago Egyptologist, Dr. Henry Frankfurt, now dead, but an author of some really neat stuff on Egypt. If you ever see an old bookstore or something, you see some stuff by Henry Frankfurt. Another author to look for in a used bookstore is William F. Albright, From the Stone Age to Christianity. It's a neat book to get. Uh, These books are charged largely out of print because nobody reads them, nobody's interested anymore, so, you know, nobody can sell them. But Henry Frankfurt's written a book, um, uh, The Kingship of the Gods. And there's another one, Ancient Egyptian Religion. Um, just tremendous pieces of work because they're, they're quite objective in the sense that he uses a lot of source material. Now, you may differ with his interpretation, but at least he got the text there so you can see what he's looking at. Anyway, Frankfurt says this. This is a sum-up of years and years of study of Egyptian literature of this period. So, we, we want to pay attention to this. This guy's good. The Egyptian belief was that the universe is changeless and that all apparent opposites must therefore hold each other in equilibrium. Such a belief has definite consequences in the field of moral philosophy. It puts a premium. Notice this. We want to, if you want to you underline or check this. It puts a premium on whatever exists with a semblance of permanence. With us. And, and today, it's very analogous to that. I mean, our society is very chaotic, always endlessly reorganizing. I mean, you wonder if the, the whole world's going into chaos mode. And in this kind of a situation, you know, you start to reach out for, you know, is, is two plus two still four? Are you going to reorganize that tomorrow? What's going on here? So, our generation tends to have a, a lusting for permanence. And you can, I think we can psychologically identify here. The Egyptians wanted order. They hated chaos. They did not want change. They did not want reorganization. They did not want any progress. They had it, and this was the way society was, and they weren't interested in improving it. Now, that's the psychology. That's the mental state of the Egyptians, and the Jews were inside that. So, Frankfurt continues, it excludes, notice, it excludes, excludes ideas of progress, utopias of any kind, revolutions, and any other radical changes in existing conditions. In this way, the belief in a static universe enhances, for instance, the significance of established authority. Check that one out. Who is Moses going to come up against? Established authority. The peon of established authority. And we want to sense what's going on here. The, the challenge of Moses to Pharaoh is not just Charlton Heston against Yule Brunner. This is a collision of two worldviews, two tremendous principles. And for Moses to dare 
even to walk into the presence of Pharaoh. And of course he did because he was in the royal family and so he had access. But for a Jew to walk into an Egyptian ruler's presence is one thing. To tell him how he's going to run his country is another thing. We are dealing with radical things in the Exodus conflict. Okay. We said last time, there. this shows up in certain art forms. So if you'll turn to the blue page where I have the pictures there, uh, we'll again review what some of this is because, again, th- these are things to pile up in your imagination. Think of these when you, when you read the Exodus. In your mind's eye, visualize, put yourself, try to put yourself as you read the Exodus into the shoes or the sandals of a Jew. You're a slave. But guess what? As a slave, you're guaranteed a job. You're guaranteed meals. You're not living chaotic existence. It's a hard, grueling existence. But it's not chaotic existence. It's a regimen. It's a routine. Every day you get up at the same time. Every day you go to bed at the same time. You've got a job every day. You have something. You're building pyramids or something. You're doing something. There's no doubt about tomorrow or what tomorrow is going to bring. Everything's pre-planned. Everything's laid out. No chaos. Everything's orderly. This little picture that we cite, picture A, comes from a comb. Apparently, an Egyptian woman of mobility had this comb. It was found in a tomb and it has some art structure to it. Particularly, what we want to look at is the number of times that the divine principle of Horus, the the falcon god, is uh, not Horus, but the falcon god shows up here. You notice he shows up here in the boat. He shows up with the wings, and he shows up here over this box. And uh, I mentioned this point last time that when you interpret Egyptian art, here's a little trick to do it. Otherwise, your eyeball looks at this and wonders, "Gee, are these little five-year-old kids drawing drawings?" When the Egyptians drew, say, a pharaoh or a human being with a falcon head, let's just say that, they, they, were, they were normal people. They didn't believe that literally there was a pharaoh walking around with a falcon head. What they were drawing corresponds in our culture to what you would see, say, on the editorial page of the Baltimore Sun for an editor, a political caricature. You know how they all, for example, I can remember, I had it here and I kept it for years and then I forgot it was a perfect picture. It was uh, back years ago during one of the conflicts we had with the Soviet Union and it showed, uh, I think it was Khrushchev or something, his body in a suit coat and then it had a missile for his head. And uh, now, the artist of the Baltimore Sun didn't literally say that Khrushchev has a missile head, but what did he mean when he caricatured Khrushchev like that? He was caricaturing character. So when you see these art forms in Egypt, that's what they're saying. This is a, their way of expressing a certain quality. And in this case, the universe is saturated with this falcon deity. Notice here this boat that appears here. is Actually, he's pictured as the sun going across the sky. His wings correspond to the sky and he himself perches on top of this box where Pharaoh's name is. And what that's saying is, remember we've been talking about continuity of being, continuity of being, that all the universe is tied together? What that's saying is that the same principle that animates the sun, that the physics of the sky 
is also operative in the office of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is linked with the universe in a sort of physical way. And then we have other art forms in that thing that you can see. Uh, here's the one, by the way, of Pharaoh actually drawn with a falcon head. And there again, notice that he has the nature of that which is in the falcon. And we also said several things. Uh, this is the Great Pyramid, uh, one of the, the columns. And the thing that you want to understand about that is, as Frankfurt points out in his text, that these lines that go up and down aren't lines. If you look very carefully with your eye, you'll see they stop right there. And if you look carefully, they don't, they don't touch up there. That's a defined line, the vertical scepter. And it has a particular meaning. In fact, that scepter there is the same thing that you see on the woman's comb. In the woman's comb, it's painted very crudely. There's the scepter, scepter uh, symbol right there. There's the other one. And by the way, that little thing there is the Egyptian principle of eternal life. You'll see it on jewelry today, New Age. And actually, it's old age. It's, it's the Egyptian life symbol. Nothing new under the sun. Then inside this, this name is a Pharaoh's name. So what it's saying with the sun symbol at the top and the earth symbol below is that Pharaoh in his person and in his office, he integrates and preserves order for the whole universe. So you can see with, with seeing Pharaoh, you mean you don't like the guy personally, but the problem is that you knock him off and there's danger that the universe gets out of discord. That's the problem. And that's the guy that Moses goes up against. And if that wasn't enough, one artist drew this drawing where you'll notice that Pharaoh is the same height in the picture as the gods. Notice there's a god on his left and there's a god on his right. In fact, if you draw a line from the top of that head over to that head, you'll see Pharaoh's head is a little higher. So they pictured figures by their importance, by height instead of perspective, and use perspective. And what is this poster saying? This is a political, religious poster. It's saying that Pharaoh eh, dwells with gods, not with men. Okay, that's the background for Egypt. Now tonight, we want to look at the catastrophe itself. So let's turn in the Bible. We want to look at what happened. That is the background. So if you turn to um, Exodus... Uh, let's turn, start with Exodus 3. Going to come back to Exodus 3 eventually for some more material. But this is one of the dramatic theophanies of the Scripture. And that's a word that you should know because it's a description of a portion of the Bible. So let's get that word down. A theophany. And that means uh, something which is seen, and that's God. And so wherever you have a theophany in the Bible, God Himself is appearing. This is a theophany in Exodus 3. So Moses was pasturing the flock... And verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. We had time we could develop the difference between the Lord, the angel of the Lord, and the spirit of the Lord. 
because that's the Trinity in the Old Testament. Actually, the angel of the Lord that shows up is actually the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And I want you to look at a characteristic of this. This we come back to later because we're going to talk about the name of God. Notice the last clause in verse 2. That reports something that Moses observed. As he looked into this bush, that what caught his eye was, I mean, I'm sure he's seen grass fires before. But what was strange about this was that the bush was burning, but the bush wasn't consumed. So something strange is here. This catches his eye. I mean, this guy's not stupid. He's been out there seeing grass fires for decades. This dry desert out there. Grass fire can happen. Maybe they didn't have cigarettes to start them, but they, they had gra- some grass fires anyway. You see them in the art forms. So, Moses is curious. So he goes over to this thing that he sees. It's not being consumed, but the fire is there. And he meets God. And there's this famous scene, and the first words out of the mouth of God in verse 6, what, now that you've had some, some uh, framework here, why does God say verse 6? Anybody got an idea? Why do you suppose on the eve of this momentous historic occasion, God's first words to Moses are these? What is, this, what is this hark back to? What is God trying to get focus in on by saying what he's saying here? When he says the God of Abraham, or the God of Adam, or the God of Noah, why does he say, I am the God of Abraham? What did he do with Abraham? Made a covenant. So what he is saying is, it's covenant time. Moses, you are in line for my covenant business. I promised I was going to do something. By the way, how many years has transpired? At least four centuries, five centuries maybe have gone on. This would be like God doesn't speak from the time of Martin Luther to the time of uh, us. And the last time anybody ever had a theophany was in Martin Luther's day and all of a sudden God speaks today and says, okay, I'm the God of Martin Luther. Now, if he came that way, what would you think? Well, you'd say, gee, this has something to do with Reformation. Well, that's what's going on here. There's a long time interval here and suddenly he shows up and he starts talking about he's the God of three men. These are the three men to whom the covenant was ratified. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says, verse 7, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. I am aware of their sufferings. Now, just... Hold it somewhere in your notes or just make a little jot to, to go. We're going to come back to this. Notice that in the end of verse 7, God says that I have observed their what? Their sufferings. Notice in verse 3, the bush is not consumed. Though we'll see how those are related later. Verse 8, I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land. And now, verse 9, Behold the cry of the sons of Israel. I see the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. I will send you to Pharaoh so you may bring my people out of Egypt. And they have the famous dialogue of Moses and God. Now let's look at some details of the Exodus issue. I presume you've read through some of this. And um, Now, uh, verse. let's go to chapter 7. We're going to skip a little bit through here, but from chapter 7... Uh, Verse 14 on, um, 
things get uh, worse and worse, much more of a conflict that goes on with each plague. And we want to look first at how this sets up. We want to skim through this section from chapter 7, verse 14 to chapter 10, verse 29. And I want to point out highlights of these plagues. We won't have time to go into all of them and so forth, but just to look at highlights. And the reason why I'm doing this is because after we get done with this, and you've observed the text, forget what you know about ancient history. If, you say, if you've studied ancient history in the Egyptian kingdom, the New Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, forget that for a minute. Just look at what the text is telling us. Then we'll come back to ancient history and we'll see we've got a problem. All right, let's look at the text. In verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going to the water, uh, going out to the water. Station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And then that's the famous time when he turned the Nile into blood. And then, of course, then you have this little play that goes on because um, verse 22, the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Now, don't misread that. Pay attention to that area about the magicians, what these guys are doing. Can you imagine these guys have the power to change water? And what does that tell you about the principalities and powers around Pharaoh? Profoundly demonic. Probably in history, these guys had the strongest demonic linkage of anybody since the red-hooded, probably in our day, the only people that correspond to that would be the red-hooded monks of Tibet or something. But apart from them, uh, this is a rather unusually powerful thing. You'll see that just as God does a miracle, they counter it up to a point. And then God's miracles can't be counterfeited any longer, showing you who is in charge. Satan is strong, but he's not as strong as Jehovah God. So that's the conflict that happens. It's, and it, it's to show us the strength, the embedded spiritual structure in all this stuff that we just looked at in the art. This was a society that was extremely powerful in its structure. It was a, the Egyptians, in all their history, never experienced a revolution. Now you name one other society that lived for over a thousand years that never had a revolt. I think you'd be pretty hard-pressed to find any civilization that ever endured those many centuries without an internal uprising and a revolt somewhere along the line. And we have only lived 300 years and we've already had a civil war. Not Egypt. So, the exit is going to be a very remarkable event because it took place in the most unlikely political, social milieu that it could possibly have taken. Let's look at some more things. As we go down through chapter 8, we get to the point where the, the, uh, in verse 8, Pharaoh called for Moses and treat the Lord, he removed the frogs from me and my people, so the frogs are all over the place. Um, when Pharaoh saw, verse 15, there was relief, he hardened his heart, did not listen to them. Now watch what happens here. Verse, 17, uh, verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, Go ahead, stretch forth your staff, strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. And they did. And by the way, notice, through all the land of Egypt, please notice. I want you to look at the dimensions of the plagues. Forget what we know about history. Just look at the textual dimensions of these plagues. 
And in verse 18, here's the end of the little train. See, one of these guys is going to get off the train because his train stops. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. And so there were gnats and man and beast. And then the magician said to Pharaoh, now watch this, this is cute. Here the demonically empowered magicians, mighty in class, bear witness to the gospel, to Pharaoh. Look at what they tell him. They say, this is the finger of Elohim, using the Jewish name for God. This is the finger of God. So here they are confessing to this God against this, this comb, this pillar, all this art where Pharaoh was the integrator. And here they were, committed all their life to the idea that there was just this continuity of being and that everything was part of God. Then they get confronted with this miracle that they can't handle. And they, what do they do? All of a sudden they get God conscious again, see? Why? Because they were God conscious all along. What does Romans 1 say? Everybody's God conscious. It's just they suppress it. And then all of a sudden it spurts out in the middle of some sort of mess or crisis, see? Well, here it is. God consciousness and these demonically inspired people. So they confess now that they can't do it, so this must be God. Well, then in verse 22, something else happens. On that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so no swarms of insects will be there in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign will occur. So now, not only have the plagues escalated to the point they can't be counterfeited, but now they become surgical tools. They are administrated not in a broad statistical profile. Rather, they are razor sharp in their dimensions. They distinguish between Egyptian and Jew. And so it goes on. We want to look at a few other things. Um, we come to chapter 9, verse 4. Now we have a plague on the livestock and a pestilence. Keep in mind, every time you see a destruction of crops or livestock, what are you really seeing? What, what, what ramification is that going to have in any society in that day? If you destroy the crops and you destroy the cattle, what have you destroyed? Their economy. Put everybody out of work. It's gone. It's devastated for at least a year. And with the livestock, you lose your livestock. Now you've got breeding problems. So we're witnessing something that happened to the most powerful nation on earth here. This is not some little thing that happened in the corner. This was a massive destruction of the Egyptian economy like they'd never seen. In verse 6, God did this thing. All the cattle, livestock of the Egyptians died, but of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. And you think that sort of communicates a message? That's amazing, isn't it? What's happening economically here? Whose assets are getting erased? See, this is something, a lot of preachers come into this passage and they always talk about the spiritual side, but there's some other things going on here and I want you to see. There's an economic shift of power going on. The world system is being devastated in its economy and the believers are being blessed economically here. Not because materialism is the whole point. It's just that God reigns and that's the way he's redistributing things. That happens to be a recurrent theme, by the way, in the kingdom of God in the future. So, we have more conflict going on. Verse 11, the magicians could not stand before Moses. 
because of the boils. So the boils were on the magicians as well as on the, on the Egyptians. These guys are totally wiped out. So now Moses has triumphed over all opposition except the Pharaoh. Now, verse 18. Just observe what the text is telling us about this plague. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send a very heavy hail such as not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. You know how many years that is? The day it was founded until now? One thousand years. So this is... A, talk about engineers designed roads and so on for a hundred-year flood. This is a thousand-year hailstorm that happens here. This is a highly unusual, crazy events. They are surgically precise. They are national in scope and they are utterly devastating and miraculous in dimension. Amazing series of pestilences. We read this in too much of a trivial way. In 23, verse 23, the Lord sent thunder and hail, fire ran down to the earth. The Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. And so there was hail, fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The text repeats this thing. The text is stressing the uniqueness of these events. And the hail struck all that was in the field, both man and beast. The hail struck every plant, shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen where the sons of Israel was there no hail. Okay, now, um, we could go on and just... And by the way, there's something other, another little observation. Look back at the little clever word in verse 21. In the midst of all this fire and hail, there's another little neat uh, observation. Verse 20 and 21. The one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord... Now, does that suggest there are believers among Egyptians? Yes, it does. Were they one to Christ in the Old Testament? Yes, they were. There were believers in Egyptian society. They had somehow gotten hold of the gospel truth of what it was known at that level of time. The one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. So they were listening to Moses and they were starting to get the message. So this is a this is a that little verse like that. That's a neat observation because it shows you that as these plagues escalate, God always does five or six things at once, never just one thing. So he's winning Egyptians to himself prior to this great divergence that's going to take place. Then we go on and look further at the dimensions of this thing. It keeps on going. Chapter ten, verse two. This gives you the theology behind it that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I mocked, made a mockery of the Egyptians, how I performed my signs, that you may know that I am the Lord. Ever, we use the expression in our everyday speech about, oh, well, so-and-so put the fear of God into them. You know where it comes from? This kind of stuff. These people were getting the fear of God put into them. And how was it? Because they were observing not just an ordinary storm. See, this can't be interpreted like it's just, oh, well, gee, a thunderstorm happened one day. This isn't talking about a thunderstorm. This is talking about a major catastrophe that was so obviously supernatural that people either said, this is God who I will defy to my last breath, or this is the God and I bow to Him and I surrender. 
But whatever it is, you see, it forces a decision. Nobody's neutral here. You're going to go down in defiance or you're going to go down in submission. But down you go because these are the works and power of God. Okay. So he goes on and describes what's going to happen and um, the, the, about the hail. And notice in verse 15, the damage report, nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. What is the text telling us? This is a historically unique time. Something utterly devastated the land. Now the spooky one. Verse 21. Can you imagine this one? Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness which may be felt. And so Moses stretched forth his hand. There was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Whatever this was, it suppressed candles. It suppressed ordinary systems of light. Artificial lights were suppressed. They were turned off. What was this thick darkness that could be felt? We don't know. But it wasn't regular darkness. It wasn't an eclipse of the moon that lasted three days. Now, that's three times 24 hours. That's no eclipse. This can't be explained as natural sequence of events, folks, unless the Bible's a myth. This is a myth, or it's explaining something fantastically devastating. Then it goes on to describe what happened and so forth. And then finally, we come to the famous passage in chapter 12. I will, he announces, or chapter 11, where he says in verse 1 of chapter 11, one more plague I'll bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt, that he will let you go. And he says, uh, by the way, verse 2, we're going to see that. Speak now in the hearing of people that each man asks from his neighbor and each woman for her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. There's an economic irony to this. Who built the pyramids? This is, a, by the way, this is a, a controversial item, so I'll have to cover this later. But for those of you who know history, but the idea here is that the uh, the Jewish slaves worked for nothing for many many years. Guess who owed them? Now, all of a sudden, the Egyptian, the Jews, when they walk out of Israel, have the assets. They got the cattle. They got the silver. And they got the gold. Where did the Jewish economy start? Where did the economic engine get initialized? Right here. They took plunder from the world. And he used that plunder of the world system to build their mighty nation. How did Israel start? You have to have money and gold and land to start with. And they started by plundering the world system. This is a little bit more aggressive, isn't it, than this little picture of believers walking around like this and laying down and being uh, doormats for everybody. Here we have a mighty working of God in which an economic transfer of wealth takes place between corruption and non-uncorruption between salvation. Okay. Now he gets down to the nitty-gritty. About midnight, I'm going out into the midst of Egypt. And, and, and notice, because we have to come back to this because of the doctrine involved, in verse 4, the subject of the verb is God himself, not an angel. But at midnight, I am going forth into the land of Egypt. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of cattle as well. 
And there will be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as, again, note the, the text, such as there has not been before and such as never be again. This is an unforgettable historic occasion. Every place they had death. Well, you say, well, God, this is you know, God's kind of nasty here. And we have to, we're going to deal with that. This is tough stuff. It is hated by the world system because it represents a tremendous interference into a society that had geared its whole reason for living to keep down chaos and have some sort of order here. Order, that is, ordained by man. Order decreed and legislated by man's plans and by man's organizations. And you can see the tremendous devastation. In verse 9, God knows, Pharaoh won't listen to you, so my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And we go back through, we, we will... Uh, go on further, but in chapter 14, we have a fantastic uh, picture of the famous scene by the Red Sea. Uh, the Jews have left. They've come to the Red Sea. Now they, they're stuck because they're, ba- they're, they're, they're walking along and here they are with a great body of water. They have no flanking defenses. They have no armies. They have no defense on their right flank, no defense on their left flank. They're ahead of them, there's water, and behind them, there's Pharaoh. Now, this is neat. And they're about ready to say, uh, let's reconsider here. I think we got a little problem. Because guess who has the assets? I mean, Pharaoh's not just interested in going out killing Jews. He's going out, wants to get his gold and silver back, wants to get some cattle back, wants to restart the economy. So there's, there's material reasons why Pharaoh's going after, plus the fact nobody does this to Pharaoh. He's got his historic reputation on the line. And here's one of the great, great promises of Scripture. Verse 13 and 14, Exodus 14. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Now, is this the picture of an aggressive minority overthrowing their tyrannical rulers in a great human revolution to bring in a new society? Not at all. These people didn't even want to revolt. They had to be dragged out of there. And when they got to the the thing, they weren't fighting Pharaoh. They were passive. They were people who pictured and rested on God's promises. See, it's a picture of faith. Right here. The whole Exodus is a faith. And then, uh, if some of you are music lovers, chapter 15... If you've ever read Handel, Handel has a neat piece called Israel in Egypt. I used to have it, and I, the tape got bad, and, and, but four or five years ago I played it when I uh, taught Exodus 14 in a, in a, back when you were in Falston High School. And to hear Handel take the chorus of chapter 15, this is a song, and it was sung by the women of Israel. And these women were pretty active warrior-type women. They weren't just nice, sweet little ladies. I mean, look at the lyrics of this song. ...unto the Lord, for He is highly exalted. What it is, is antiphonal music. The men would sing and the women would sing. The men would sing and the women would sing. And it was back and forth. And Handel in this piece does it really nice. Um, 
But I will sing to the Lord, for He is exalted. The horse and His rider is He thrown into the sea. Now just think of the, the power of that kind of music. This is not something dainty. This is mighty, it is powerful, and it's people who worship a very, very big God. The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. And guess who that's a picture of? What were the magicians around Pharaoh locked into? Demonism, demonic. This is an utterly satanic picture of the world system. And the rejoicing is that it's overthrown. And what, who in particular is overthrown? But the very power, the central power that we've seen in the art. Pharaoh is overthrown. The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. Okay, now all of that is the mighty picture of the text. Now, on page 47, on the notes, we have to come back as Christians. We have to think we do live in this world. And if we go out and we start talking about the mighty exodus, people are going to say, wait a minute, now that's not what history tells me. So, we want to warn you about a little problem here. Just like when we teach Genesis, Bible can't be taught in a vacuum. This is the way Egyptian history looks like if you learn it in university or college. There's three kingdoms in Egypt. Old, middle, new. Now, that takes a PhD to do that one. With two intermittent periods. By the classic dating scheme, the exodus had to have occurred here. Big problem. The New Kingdom was the most powerful time of Egyptian history. There's not a record whatsoever that their economy any time during the New Kingdom was affected. Moreover, they controlled all of Palestine in this New Kingdom period. And where did the Jews go after they wandered around the wilderness 40 years? Where did they conquer? Palestine. Do you read any case in the book of Joshua where they were fighting? They fight in Canaanites, Perizzites, Hittites. Do you ever they fight in Egyptians? Where do you read they fight in Egyptians in Joshua? Not one notice. You know what? Take a concordance and look up the word Egyptian and try to find it between the time of Moses and the time of Solomon. Now, you'll find it, the word Egypt, but you'll always see its reference back to, to Exodus, the memory of Exodus. But find one from any concordance you pick. You try to find an occurrence of the word in Egypt as a contemporary power any time between the time of Moses and Solomon. Five centuries go by, and there's not a shred of evidence of Egypt's existence. Where the Jews come walking into a land, they destroy all the inhabitants, take it over and make it their homeland, and it's a province of the new kingdom of Egypt? Excuse me? Got a problem here. Big problem. Several years back, actually several decades ago, a Jewish atheist by the name of Emmanuel Velikovsky came up with a startling find. Now, this is a guy who is not out to prove that the God exists, obviously. But Velikovsky, being a Jew, had tremendous respect for the historicity of the Old Testament. Velikovsky made the startling find. He did a lot of research in literature. And he discovered something right here at the end of that Middle Kingdom. And I've reproduced part of it on page 48. He found a papyrus by an Egyptian poet 
by the name of Epur. Now look at that text on page 48. On the left side are the verses from the papyri. On the right side are texts from Exodus which for all the world look identical. This Egyptian poet is is writing about plague throughout the land, blood is everywhere. The river is blood, men shrink from tasting it. Gates, columns, and walls are consumed by fire. He who places his brother in the ground is everywhere. It is groaning that is throughout the land, mingled with lamentations. Trees are destroyed. All animals, their hearts weep. Grain is perished on every side. The fire mounts up on high. Each man fetches for himself those that are branded with his name. The land is not light. I don't know about you, but that has a strange sound to it. And Velikovsky said that what must have happened is that what the Exodus did is it ended the Middle Kingdom. And and ironically, if you take that date and you, you notice Egyptian history, there are four centuries between the end of the Middle Kingdom and the beginning of the end of the Middle Kingdom and the beginning of the New Kingdom. So, Velikovsky said what we must have, since the Exodus is dated on the basis of Scripture at 1440, thereabouts, B.C., and this kingdom, supposedly, it was about... Um, um, let's see, this is 14, that's 1718, probably about 2000. What we have done is we've made Egyptian history too old. So, he moved the date of the Middle Kingdom up. But when he did that, he had to move the new kingdom up. And it was just preposterous. And historians say, this, is, this can't be. This means we've got a 500-year error in our histories. And Velikovsky said, that's right, you do. And a lot of debate, and they, they, they wound up in the end saying, this can't be, the Bible's wrong. I think Velikovsky might not be right in all of his details, but he was later looked at by a Seventh-day Adventist Old Testament scholar by the name of Donovan Kerville. And Kerville said, with Velikovsky, if you make this, redate the Egyptian kingdoms and move them forward, something else begins to happen that falls into place. Now, right about in that point in the, in the new kingdom of Egypt, there was a famous queen. Unknown and a very strange situation because this was a very patriarchal, masculine society. But all of a sudden we have this queen and she becomes very powerful. Her name is Queen Hatshepsut. She rules over Egypt. And somewhere during the, her reign, something happened. And she began to import into Egypt. She went in and she completely changed the priesthood of Egypt. Made changes in the temples. So much so that when her son, Thutmose III, ascended the throne, he was so angry at what his mother had done to all the temples and the religion of Egypt that he went to every single place where Hatshepsut's picture was inscribed and he plastered over it and put a picture of himself. So nobody for years even knew Hatshepsut existed until somebody banged into some plaster and it fell off and all of a sudden, oh, geez, look at that. Hatshepsut, during her reign as the queen, made a trip eastward to a land called God's Land. There she met some people and she brought back a series of trees. Those trees, Velikovsky points out, are the same trees that Solomon gave a queen called the Queen of Sheba. And her trees are listed in 2 Kings. You compare Hatshepsut's journey to this mysterious land 
God's land and look at the trees she brought back to Egypt. And then you look at King, what Solomon gave this mysterious queen that comes out of nowhere and disappears. We call her Queen of Sheba because they think of some little Arab province someplace. And so, so, so we have this, uh, this, this constant uh, correlation. So you can correlate that point and that point. Then her son, Tutmos, because remember this is in the Solomonic era, after Solomon, his son Rehoboam is a sort of an idiot, and he loses the kingdom because he's so foolish in the way he listens to his advisors. And now he is invaded by an Egyptian pharaoh. First time Egypt begins to become active again in history. And the man that Velikovsky says invaded him was Hatshepsut's son. Because when you look at Hatshepsut, uh, at uh, Tutmos III, he made a campaign into Palestine and he brought back things out of a temple that he had there. And if you look in the art of what he brought back, lo and behold, if for all the world it meets the same description as the garments of the high priest in the book of Leviticus. And what does kings tell us? They looted the temple. Rehoboam had to loot the temple to pay off the Egyptian army. So the point is that we must have here, apparently in ancient history, we are as screwed up there as we are in geology and the other areas of climatology and paleoclimatology and so forth. And I just throw that out to you that be careful. Don't be like a lot of Christians, even in Bible school, they, they accept this whole scheme and then they try desperately to fit the Exodus and make it sort of a quiet little event that happened that nobody remembered inside the New Kingdom. And I don't think it can be done for reasons which I think we've gone through tonight. The Exodus is too big not to have been recognized. The other thing that Donovan Creville points out is that when you make this realignment of history and you make this the end, you discover there's a wicked group of people that come in here out of nowhere. They're called the Hyksos. And the Hyksos have a king by the name of Apop. Now, it turns out, because of phonetic rules, that Apop can be also Agok. And the Hyksos, Velikovsky believes, answer to what the scriptures talk about, the Amalekites, whose king was Agog, Agag, who was slain uh, by Saul. So, now all of a sudden we begin to get connections. Now the Bible is reporting history. Aha! This is what was going on. So there's some tremendous linkages go there, and I just want you to be alert in passing that here again we come to the principle we've got to let the text speak for itself and use the text to set up our understanding of history, not the other way around. Get our history all from secular sources and then wonder, gee, we've got a little problem fitting the Exodus in. Well, maybe the problem is the way we've totally misinterpreted history to begin with. Other fascinating things emerge. Kerville has thinks he's identified the Pharaoh of the Exodus because if you look at the king list and you find these guys living 25 years and, uh, on the throne, that is, their throne reign, 25, maybe, and 31, 19, and then all of a sudden he finds a Pharaoh right in the same period and he, lived only, he was on the throne only five years. And then the rest of them go on and on and on. <coughs> he also points out that if this is done, the old kingdom... Had a, had a man here who was a stranger to Egyptian society who attained a, attained a tremendous rank in Egyptian society utterly unknown in Egyptian history. His name was Manhu Hotep. And he was a, not an Egyptian, 
but he lived and was the administrator of a pharaoh during a famine. So, again, I point out to you that here we have these identifications that are impossible by classic chronology. Manuotep can't be Joseph because he lived at the wrong time. This Ipura and this, this piece of papyri we're looking at in page 48 can't be talking about the Exodus because it's too early. So this is the tension we find as Christians. Now, I think it's kind of interesting that, um, that we, we, it's the same argument we've seen again and again in Genesis and elsewhere. All right, if you look, follow the notes on page 49. I want to conclude tonight by pointing to a quote in Josephus and then we'll quote a uh, quote in Moses. Uh, I'm going to have an appendix on this, uh, these course notes like I had appendices last, um, last year on geology and biology and I'll go into this, the little details of how do you date ancient history. It's not, by the way, by carbon-14. It's by called Sophic dating and there's other kind of dates that go on there. Rain, uh, kingdom reigns and so forth. But, if you look at the first paragraph, halfway through it, I have a, a, a reference to Josephus. It resolves the report by the Josephus historian, uh, by the Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus lived at the time of Jesus. Antiquities of the Jews, book 2, chapter 9, paragraph 1, that the Jews, so Josephus wrote this book and he had sources out of a library in Alexandria. The Alexandrian library was one of the saddest cases in history. We lost that library. It was burned. But that library at Alexandria had history books on it that probably, we, if we had had those, we could reconstruct ancient history with, with very little problem. But it was all burned. But Josephus had access to that library and he writes in his book where he's trying to uh, supplement the scriptures. He says that Jewish slaves built pyramids. Remember what I said about the pyramids? It was controversial. Here's why. Most of the pyramids were built back here. Kerville feels that the Old and the Middle Kingdoms are the same kingdom. That what we've done is we've taken two different king lists with two different sets of names and misconfused them. But he would say that the Old Kingdom is the Middle Kingdom. That would put the pyramids right in here and that would make the Jews as the ones who finished off the last of the pyramids which were made of brick, not of stone, as the earlier ones. So again, it's one of these little correlations that fits. Since the standard chronology insists that pyramids were no longer built when the Jews were in Egypt, this report is seen as a figment of Josephus' imagination. And I'll just conclude with this, reading this chapter. Notice that, uh, this paragraph, notice that to do this reinterpretation, we have had to challenge completely modern reconstruction of ancient Near Eastern history, just as earlier we offended the modern historical sciences. This is just more evidence of what I mentioned in part one of the series that the world suffers from global deception and lies in profound darkness. The Exodus event was a public judgment that revealed God's holiness and omnipotence to the world. It was not a minor hiccup barely noticeable in Egyptian history. Let's turn finally in conclusion to Deuteronomy chapter 4, just one verse that shows this. Moses goes back. He summarizes the, the, the era. This is 40 years later. And he, he, he asks the rhetorical question. Verse 33, has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the fire as you have heard? That's Mount Sinai. And now, in verse 34, he says, Or has a God 
tried to take, tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by plagues, by signs and wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm and by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that he is the Lord. He is God and there is no other beside him. You see how the test, the the text of the Old Testament honors God's immensity, His power and His size. That's why the Old Testament is so critical. We've got to learn the Old Testament or we come into the New and we have a little God and we get this little wimp of a Jesus running around. looks like a fossil left over from the 1960s, a hippie movement. And this is what happens because we haven't filled our soul with a preparatory work out of the Old Testament the Holy Spirit gave us to prepare us to read the New Testament. Father, we thank You for Your testimony in history. We thank You that You have given us this record and we are set in awe of Your great character, of Your ability to intervene over thousands of square miles of a mighty nation and seeking out exactly and only those people that You have saved, that You are redeeming and striking everyone else, that you can so crush a nation, that you can bring them out by such obviously supernatural powers, that who is a God like thee? We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. Josephus, the historian? Oh, Manhuhotep? It's M-A-N-T-U-H-O-T-E-P. And that's, that's if Donovan Kerville's reconstruction of Egyptian history is correct. And the reason he says that... See, see this, this involves... If you're, a, if you're a person into ancient history, this is as earth-shattering to your whole viewpoint as me walking into a, a biologist friend of mine and talking creation. I mean, this doesn't, this doesn't go over very, very easily. But the point is that Manhuhotep is, has this strange background... He appears at a time of a famine and he's next to Pharaoh. Now, if that for all the world doesn't look like Joseph, I know who does. And the thing that we have to remember is that the great people in history had many names. Um, they called, particularly if a king had many names, they called it a titulary. That is, a title list. And he might have 20 different names. And you can see this it occurs in the book of Kings a lot. If you look at, uh, maybe better to look in a Bible dictionary, and you look up, say, Solomon, or you look up Rehoboam, you look up one of these kings, and you'll notice that he has these other names. He's, he has a, not just one, he has several names. And um, Jesus is also follows that same tradition. I mean, we call him Jesus, Christ, but Christ wasn't his last name. He was uh, Jesus ben Joseph. That was one name he had. Emmanuel was another name he had. The Son of Man was another name he had. The Son of God was another name he had. Well, you can't argue there were five Jesuses because there were five names. So the logic here is that these men of history went by different titles. And that's the problem because the Egyptian documents give you the Egyptian name that they gave him. And this is a Jewish name. So, you, and you can't, and they're not apparently easily, they don't match phonetically or anything. So it, that's the problem. We don't know who these guys were. And there's been, a, I mean, any number of guys proposed to be the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And you can see by what I showed you tonight, uh, good grief, if you have one view of history, you've got to locate the Exodus over in here, and you only got 
uh, about two or three pharaohs that qualify. And the problem with that is, is that not one of them died. But if you look at Exodus 14, it says Pharaoh and his army went into the Red Sea. Well, the way the conservative scholars in our camp, I mean, I'm talking about our own people, haven't been aggressive, I don't believe, in rethinking and, and leading and taking up where Velikovsky left off. Velikovsky gave us, I think, an open door. I think it was a major discovery the man made. And everybody just kind of passes by and ignores the guy. And because it's, it's not respectable when you're a professional historian because this guy's considered to be a kook. So that's why they don't touch him with a 10-foot pole. The problem with that is, is that then when you read a conservative historian, I just got through reading the guy that teaches Old Testament, Dallas Seminary, he's a great guy. But his history of Egypt says right in smack dab in the preface of the book, we accept all the dates of the Cambridge ancient history. Well, once you've accepted those dates, you lock yourself into the new kingdom. Now he's got it. And so I was looking through, well, gee, I wonder what he does with Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh really didn't die because he could have sat on the shore and watched his army disintegrate. Well, every other picture in Egyptian art always has the Pharaoh in the lead. I mean, that was part of his, and that's why several of them were killed, because they were in the lead. When they invaded, they were point men. And, uh, or if they weren't the point man, they were certainly the second or third guy. And, and it was considered honor that the king lead his men. And uh, the idea of this Pharaoh chasing after these Jews, and he parks his chariot here and says, Hi, guys. And, and they go in and get drowned. It doesn't quite fit. So there's all these accommodations. And I, I don't pretend to solve the thing. All I'm pointing out in this class is just be aware that history is a fluid thing and it's not quite as airtight as everybody thinks it is. And just have the faith that someday maybe some godly scholar will come along and help us out. And I mean, this, this work like this, you could spend a whole, your whole life just on one reign of one pharaoh. There's so much material out there to do this. And we're in desperate need of some godly Christian scholars that will take the lead in these areas. Because I would love... I mean, one of the reasons why I think when we preach the gospel, it comes off like, how we make your opinion. I think the reason why that happens is because we're living in a generation that doesn't really believe it's history. This is just a nice little religious storybook. Oh, that's great for Sunday school. But, boy, in school we read the real history. That's just Sunday school stuff. And they, we don't bring it together. And then we wonder after about, you know, 15 years of this kind of education, why is the faith over there and everything else over here? Well, because they were taught that way. They were taught that the Bible is not connected to it whatsoever. And that's what I'm trying to break down here, is point out you can't read the Bible that way. You saw in all those textual ver uh, notices tonight of the Exodus, I mean, how much more can the Holy Spirit tell us in the text than that this was a national disaster? It was supernatural in its dimensions. Uh, it was a thing that people who observed it said there never had been before and never since. Now, that speaks to me of a catastrophe. Well, what you have to do if you don't want to, or if you don't have the energy and you're just tired intellectually, is to lie down and let the world roll over you and then say, well, gee, we've got to kind of compress that little note out of our attention and we compress this and we can get the exodus just small enough and inconspicuous enough, we can fit it there. I don't think you can do that. So, once again, we're back to the Bible versus the world. Anybody got anything else to throw out? Scott? <laughs> Active group. 
it takes it takes uh, schools and schools of people to do that work. It takes experts in it. Experts that you know. I mean, men don't dedicate their life just to learn Egyptian hieroglyphics. It's 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 a community thing. It can't be done by two or three people. We can thank God for a few people that broke the ice, but it's uh, I think it's a tragic. Uh, almost, I feel like it's almost a betrayal of a lot of Christian universities, like Wheaton College in Illinois. Who, uh, I mean, the head Wheaton College. For those of you who know a little bit about church history, was the college where Billy Graham went, and uh, it was started by fundamentalists in the 1920. Armadine was was a guy started on a godly basis, and today we have the head of the theology department Wheaton writing a book saying the scandal of Christianity is creationism. And this is what happens. It seems like every time we get a school, we finance it, we get a library started, and then the whole thing goes down the drain. And here we go. Start another school somewhere else. I mean, we've wasted millions of dollars on schools. And you wonder, well, what comes out of these things? And that's why you heard me say several times, if I want to learn unbelief, I'll go to an unbelieving school. Might as well learn good unbelief. Not some half-baked stuff. If I want to learn atheism, I'll learn it under an atheist. I'm not going to go to hear it from a Christian. And if I want to learn biblical Christianity, I, God knows where I'm going to go for that. No, that's not to say there aren't godly scholars here and there in the school systems, but it's just it's it's really pathetic in our time that we we're not taking this material by the bull by the horns and doing something with it. We don't. And I think we're paying a price. And I think that's why the gospel is sort of looked upon as a little harmless religious story by most people. Because it's not credible. The whole thing's not credible. You can talk about Jesus all you want to, but if Jesus is, a, is testified to the scriptures and the scriptures aren't historic, what does that do to Jesus? The modern person, the modern theologian, when you talk about Jesus Christ, let's not forget it, what they're going to counter us with is that's what the early church thought Jesus was. You ever notice around Christmas time, Time Magazine, Newsweek, can we find the real Jesus? They always have some article like that. And what it amounts to is that, well, we think kind of there was a guy that, that had the name Jesus that lived, you know, there and he might have taught a few classes. And, and that's about all we know. All the rest of the stuff, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, being virgin born, that's just sluff that people wanted to believe that he was a great savior, so they, they puffed up his bio, bio. And what we've got here is a puffery. And that's the modern view of the Bible. So now you go out and you try to talk about Jesus Christ, and if the person ha you're talking to happens to think that way, you see, you, 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 he's already sucked you into his viewpoint. So now you're sitting there, you've got to disassemble that mess before you can even get to the gospel. And it's not easy. A guy who's a preacher today or an evangelist today has really got his work cut out for him. It's a difficult thing. What we may be doing is a lot of our evangelism preaching is just preaching to the choir. It's very difficult to go out there and communicate. And we, we get false professions. Why do we get false professions? People don't understand it in the first place. They understand there's something here, something gooey, so let's go for it. But we really don't understand it. And if we don't understand it, we can't believe it. And if we don't believe it, we're not born again. It's that simple. So, um, you'll see this happen again and again when we get into the conquest. We're going to deal with the Jericho issue. That's been a sore point in archaeology for, for a generation. About what about the walls of Jericho? 
turns out that the walls of Jericho did fall out, just like the Bible says, but they're in the wrong strata. They're about 500 years too early. So by the time that you date the strata of Jericho when the Jews are coming in, nothing's there. It's a little shanty town. But that's not the Jericho you're reading about and Joshua for crying out loud. So there's this dating. We keep running into this over and over again in Old Testament history. We got the material, it seems like, but we got the wrong number on it. And you just be aware of that. But on the other hand, the positive side of this is if you will be aware of that, when you read the text, let the text be unleashed in your heart. And let the Holy Spirit take that text, like that powerful text tonight. Read through Miriam and the people singing that hymn. Imagine uh, a million people, a million people singing, singing this as, as, as dead bodies are floating around the water. I mean, this is mess. This is a mess here. Dead, smelly corpses floating all over the Red Sea. And these people are singing, praising God and dancing. That's the scene of Exodus 15. Uh, let's put on a, a church musical about that one. <laughs> so, so anyway, that's, that's the neat stuff, I think, in the, in the text. We'll see more of that. It gets bloodier and messier as we go on, so you know, be prepared. <laughs> Anything else? Any other questions? Oh, yes, Cindy Baxter. Remember Cindy um, came in here and she, she comes to our class. She's an English teacher at North Harford. And the um, Lord just got her that job. Actually, she replaced a teacher who was quite uh, against the Christian faith. And Cindy's been under the pile because, as a Christian, she, she's struggling with the fact that... A very interesting point here. Here's Cindy's problem. She teaches senior English. And in senior English, she's supposed to teach American history in the 20th century. Cindy's problem is she can't find an American great writer in the 20th century that expresses a Christian viewpoint. She can't use C.S. Lewis because he's English. Who does she use? Hemingway? He blows his brains out with a shotgun. So all she's got is despair literature. So that's the whole class, talking despair literature. So Cindy's struggling, well, gee, how do I do that? And so she's trying to get the kids at least to realize, okay, if this guy believes this, then here's where it leads to try to show them that. Well, she's got, because she's the new girl on the block, she got saddled with this goof-off class, half of them on crack or something. And every, you know, two or three days they, they are still alive and well and understand something that she teaches. Well, last Tuesday she gets in there and she's talking about, uh, she's able to get into the Bible. She's going to teach the Bible as literature now. Very careful, public school. So she's going to teach the Bible as literature. Well, all of a sudden the, the whole class comes unglued because these kids start asking questions about dinosaurs and what about evolution and so on. She says, well, I just got somebody that we were going to bring into class. So tomorrow I'm supposed to go and talk to her class and let the kids ask questions what they want to. She warned me tonight they may be uh, cracked out somewhere because she says they come in, they look real nice, and they kind of you know, starry-eyed. But uh, th those who don't have scrambled brains, uh, scrambled eggs or brains yet from the drugs, uh, can at least follow. And she hopes that there are a couple of kids in that class that really want answers. And she's toying with them because she's got to be careful. And so you might pray that we can speak to the issues so that there's a matching between what I say, that I'll be sensitive to what their real questions are. Because oftentimes the real question isn't the one that you hear. And the second thing we're going to do is we're going to videotape it because if any parent objects to, oh, gee, we talked about creation yesterday in a public classroom. Well, I'm going to present both sides. 
so if anybody complains, there's a videotape here, look at it. So anyway, that's the plan. So we'll see how if it comes off or not. But I appreciate your prayer. Okay. See you next week. <laughs>